So the reading this evening is Luke chapter 5, verses 27 to 32. Luke 5, 27 to 32. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting in his tax booth. Follow me, Jesus said to him. And Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. Then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house, and a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. But the Pharisees and the teacher of the law, teachers of the law who belonged to their sect complained to his disciples, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered them, It is not the healthy who need the do uh, doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you so much, Craig, for that introduction. No pressure. Um, I just I got, feel I've got so much to say tonight. I'm going to try and keep it brief. But I wanted to start off by saying just on behalf of us all, just how incredibly grateful I am um, to the people who are doing sound and vision and the band. Uh, because one of the most beautiful things about beginning to come back into this building and sing and worship together has just been the vitality and the sincerity and the excellence that you have uh, brought. So can we just say thank you to our wonderful musicians and band? The real purpose of tonight's preach is just to try and get us to start to see other people as Jesus saw them. And wouldn't the world be a brilliant place, and wouldn't Winchester be a brilliant place if we were able to do so? And, and that's really all I'm going to try and do just by unpacking the story. But if you, if you have no other thought tonight, just may it be this thought, that I want to treat people like Jesus treated them. And that would get us a long way. Now, they say, don't they, that all feedback is good feedback. That is uh, how it's said. But if you run a hotel, uh, there must be occasions uh, when you are ready to weep. And I did a little bit of investigating this week. These are apparently true comments that were left on TripAdvisor after people had been to various hotels. And uh, the first one goes like this. Uh, the person says, uh, was, none of them are happy, by the way, just in case you're worried. Uh, none of them are happy. The first one says, we bought Ray-Ban sunglasses for five euros from a street trader, only to find out they were fake. <laughs> Second person had been to Spain and said, there are too many Spanish people. The receptionist speaks Spanish, the food is Spanish, everybody is Spanish. Uh, the last one said, I was bitten by a mosquito. Nobody told me they could bite. <laughs> and you just think, uh, you know, there's a kind of, there's a complaining culture, isn't there, um, out there, and just some people don't get it. If you're a hotelier, then you have my admiration. You need lots of self-control. But just for once, I am grateful for a complaint, and it's the complaint that comes in this passage and it's the complaint that the Pharisees make 
about Jesus. He was used to complaints, but their complaint is brilliant because it so totally gets where he's at and it enables him to say something even more profound. So we're going to rejoice in this complaint. Now this would have been an amazing incident, don't get me wrong, without this complaint, but the complaint takes it to another level. Uh, without it, this still would have been amazing. Jesus reaches out to one of the most disliked and distrusted people in town. It's a tax collector called Levi, although elsewhere in the Gospels uh, he is called uh, Matthew. Jesus goes to him. It's just such a classic Jesus thing to do, isn't it? He doesn't just sit there and wait for people to come to him. He goes to Levi at his place of work, sitting in his hated uh, tax booth, probably with an armed guard uh, next to him. And uh, Levi's work is to collect tax on behalf of the uh, occupying Roman army. And so if you know your English history at all, think back to King John and the Sheriff of Nottingham and Robin Hood standing up for the poor. And you just, you'll get a sense of how in our English sort of culture, we view people uh, that indiscriminately uh, rob and tax uh, the poor uh, for the sake of the rich. We hate uh, such behavior and people the world over are no different. Levi was helping push people into poverty. He was killing businesses and families. He was sucking the lifeblood out of the community. He was a traitor. He was getting rich at your expense. Now, it's fascinating. This happens, this incident happens really early in Jesus' ministry. And we don't know what he's going to do. There's Levi, there's Jesus, the two of Jesus is coming towards him. We've got no idea what Jesus is going to do. Religious leaders are thinking he's probably going to go and rebuke him and tell him off. The disciples are maybe thinking that, but they've just already learned enough to know that they're not quite sure how this is going to go. And so we are genuinely interested as we see Jesus come uh, towards him and trying to work out how is Jesus going to interact and engage uh, with this man. Jesus simply says, follow me. And we have no idea whether Jesus and Levi have met before, uh, whether Levi has heard him preach or, heard, or seen him heal someone. We just don't know. All we know is that Jesus calls him. There's a profound beauty in this. Jesus has this amazing understanding of himself that that's what he's there to do. He's there to call people and to reach out at two people. He knows who he is. He knows he's the son of God and he's come to beckon people to follow him. It's astonishing to see Jesus invite somebody like Levi who on pretty much every single indicator was going to be at the bottom of anybody's list. Pretty much the only thing going for him was that he had money. But that was dirty money, and he left most of it behind. It's just as astonishing, isn't it, to see Levi get up from his booth and follow Jesus and leave his life of betrayal and injustice behind him. Now, of course, Levi didn't automatically become a perfect person. 
He didn't automatically become kind and generous and sacrificial and full of faith. But this was a moment, a, a moment, this is a U-turn in his life. And some of us who are here have had a Christian experience that is like that. Uh, mine was more gradual. Uh, in a sense, I ended up doing the same thing, big U-turn, but it took me about six months to a year, really, to sort of make that turn and come back round uh, to call myself someone who followed uh, Jesus. I don't know what your experience is. But it's even more astonishing to see Levi's next move, which is to hold a big banquet for Jesus at his house and to invite a large crowd of all of his friends. And each one of those friends was equally out of place with a religious leader uh, like uh, Jesus, or so they thought. There is a beautiful and unfiltered and instinctive quality to Levi's spontaneous invitation. I'm going to have a party. Uh, Levi is not second-guessing whether Jesus approves of all this expenditure on wine and food and other things. Uh, Levi doesn't second-guess whether Jesus wants to have a party with this dubious bunch of sellouts. Uh, instead, he just decides, I'm going to have a party. He's experienced a seismic shift in his life. He wants to celebrate uh, with his friends. And he wants his friends to meet Jesus, and he wants Jesus to meet his friends. Now, by all accounts, it was a great party. Jesus seems totally at home uh, with Levi and with his crowd. So, we haven't even had the complaint yet, which in one sense is the best bit. But before we get to that, we, we need to recognize this is a great moment. And of course, it is deeply challenging. And it's deeply challenging in a number of ways. The first one is for us to ask ourselves, who comes to my parties? Because it's distressing to say, but Christians are unbelievably rubbish at maintaining friendships with people outside the church. And we seem to, and I don't know how we do this, because no Christian leader that I know has ever set out to achieve this. And yet, what we see is from, very, from, from teenage years onwards, and certainly into student times and on from that, we just get into our little ghettos. And it's heartbreaking when you read a passage like this uh, to see how quickly uh, we form into our little cliques and the only people that we spend any meaningful time with are people who are Christians. And so if you were to have a party tonight, who would you invite? And if the honest answer, I'm not asking for any hands up, if the honest answer is it's pretty much 99% Christians, then I would gently suggest that you need to go back and read this story and need to see uh, Levi's own example. Uh, because secondly, the question is not first and foremost, will my friends come to church? Uh, we pray that they will. We pray pretty much every day of the week that people come to our church who have no faith or have some faith, and they meet Christ here, they become his disciples. But the most likely route to church is through your house. And so the question is, not who's going to come to church with me next week, the question is, who's going to come to my house next week? And how can I use my house, my hospitality, uh, to provide care and concern 
and a creative space for conversation and celebration, where I can naturally talk about my faith and share it in a way that is really natural. So some great sort of mid-sermon questions about who comes to your parties and who could come to your house. But see, then comes the complaint from the ever-vigilant God squad. And here's their complaint to Jesus. Profound. It's one of those fascinating things. They say it feeling full of God and full of righteous indignation. But in the very speaking of the words, they reveal the barren emptiness of their own faith. Why, they say to Jesus, why do you eat with tax collectors and sinners? It's a brilliant question, even if it's asked in fear and misunderstanding, because it highlights two completely contradictory views of how God works in the world. Two absolutely contradictory views, and they're highlighted and brought into contrast through the question. The Pharisees, on the one hand, have what we might call a contagion model, uh, one that we understand only too clearly after 18 months of COVID. Uh, the, the contagion model is driven by fear and mistrust, and the, the number one danger is being contaminated or getting the virus. Now remember back, even a few months ago, how we were being encouraged to think about other people. Stay away, put your mask on, uh, socially uh, isolate, socially distance, don't come close. And that's exactly the mindset that the Pharisees have. Uh, they're driven by fear of other people. Uh, they're fixated on the failures of people around them, uh, and that's a way they feel better about themselves. They criticize, they alienate, they draw lines in the sand. The way that you loved God and the way that you nurtured your own spiritual life was by staying away from people that you thought were impure or second-rate or people who'd failed, people who'd got it wrong. And so the problem for the Pharisees, the problem was out there. The problem was the great unwashed. The problem wasn't in here, in their own heart and their own head. The problem was out there. And so righteously, they're saying to Jesus, how can you mix with the failures and the sellouts and the betrayers and the traitors? Because if you love God, you're going to be tainted and corrupted by them. Uh-uh. Jesus thinks entirely differently. He has shown by his friendships, by his teaching, by his invitations to people like Levi, that he could not agree, disagree more fundamentally. And the Pharisees' complaint, which of course in their world sounds so respectable and honorable, provokes his wonderful response. Jesus says, it's not the healthy it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but I've come to call sinners to repentance. It's such a beautiful thing. And it would never have been said, we don't think, without the Pharisees complaining right into Jesus' face. He says some incredible things there. He 
underlines that every single person is a sinner who needs to be called to repentance. He underlines that good doctors, both then and in history and now, good doctors don't shun the sick, but they welcome them and they're completely invested in unwell people getting better. You know, none of us would think very highly of our GP if we rang them up tomorrow and said, I'm not feeling very well. And they said, well, can you ring us back in three months when you feel better? I know occasionally it feels like that. But you know, we wouldn't, would we? If we thought the actual demeanor of our doctor was, come and see me when you're well. Jesus says, I'm just like that. I'm just like that. He utterly rejects the contamination model. He offers something far, far better. What does he offer? He offers mercy. He offers the recognition of failure and selfishness and bad decisions. He sees all of those things. He doesn't think Levi's this great guy. He knows exactly what he's done. He knows exactly what he's like inside and in his behavior. But he sees that and he brings to it an, unqu an unquenchable love for people like me who make bad decisions. Jesus loves people. He's not particularly impressed by people. He just loves us. And he delights in us. And he knows that we need putting back together. He is the very best of doctors with a passion to restore broken people like me. And he has this refusal, again, like the best doctors, a refusal to let us sit there thinking everything's okay. Now, if you were really ill, then the last, the very last thing that you want to hear from your doctor is, don't worry, everything's fine. What kind of doctor says that to someone who is terminally ill? We need a doctor in Jesus who looks us in the eye and says, I know lots is wrong. I know lots is broken, but I'm absolutely here to deal with that and face that and bring you through that. So let me finish by asking you, how, you, how do you see your friends and your neighbors? Just think about that some of the people maybe you live alongside, that people in the same house as you, people next door. How do you see them? See, some of us are tempted to despair uh, of the people that we're friends with or that we live nearby. Because we can, so, quite honestly, we can see the results of their, of their bad decisions. And, and there's a little bit of us that's thinking, serves them right. And we see things going wrong, we think, well, you've only got yourself to blame. Or we're complaining to God about them. We're probably a bit too polite to really complain, but we are in our hearts thinking, you know, why are they so hard? Why are they so difficult? Why are they so beyond my reach? Why is it so unlikely that they're going to come to church? Those are some of the ways that we can think about others. I know many of you are in a very different place. And if we had the time, we could, we could just count up you know, the, the amazing array of friendships and uh, sacrifice and love and concern 
uh, both uh, for those close to you physically, but also those that you come across uh, and uh, those that you uh, shower with love and with mercy. That way is the best way, is the Jesus way. And I think there are two things that we can do uh, to walk in his footsteps. The first is to pray for our neighbors, but to pray for them as fellow sinners who need God's grace. And just to repent of the judgmental spirit that gets into our little Christian hearts and makes us mean and makes us ugly and makes us nasty. The way we should see our neighbors is as fellow sinners who need God's grace and who need God's mercy. That's the first thing. Let's do that. Let's learn to see them in that way. The second thing is throw a big party. <laughs> 